Welcome to The Obsession Digression, a podcast that explores all of the cultural things that obsess us. Filmmakers, musicians, TV shows, icons, each season of The Obsession Digression provides a deep look into one of those things that we can't seem to stop thinking or talking about. I'm Sam Benoishik. And I'm Katie Walker. Uh, so this is our first episode, and we clearly have no idea what we're doing. Nope. Uh, we are sitting in the basement of our campus library. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> With no coffee. Um, but our attempt is to kind of capture what it is and why it is that we become obsessed over cult classics, uh, kind of cultural icons, different figures, um, and why we want to talk over and over again, provide different details about these specific figures, filmmakers, etc. So who are we that we're sitting in a campus library? Oh, sure. <laughs> we should tell them who we are. Um, so I'm Katie Walker, like I said. Uh, I'm a sixth-year PhD student at UNC. I study Shakespeare and weird shit. Um, so palmistry, women giving birth to birth, birth, birth to rabbits, etc. Does that work as a bio? <laughs> I think that's fine. Okay. Again, I'm Sam Benoichik. I'm also, for at least two more months, a grad student at UNC, and I study post-war American literature and culture. So we're deciding to use our uh, academic research powers for something very non-academic. Mm-hmm. So our plan for the podcast is to have many seasons of like six or eight episodes where we'll look at one topic. Exactly. Uh, moving on to another. So why don't you tell us about this season's topic? Uh, so this is very close to my heart. Uh, we decided to start with one of the most oddball figures, um, contemporary figures, uh, and that's David Lynch. Uh, David Lynch, as you might know, is a um, director, filmmaker, um, does a billion other things as well, including meditating. Painter. <laughs> He's a painter. Yeah. He designs his own furniture, and he has musician. two yeah two albums out right now. Um, so, given that there's so many people obsessed with Lynch, and the new season of Twin Peaks is about to come out, um, we decided to first dive into what is exactly Lynchian. And what makes that interesting, or why are we why we're obsessed with it? So today we'll just be talking about early Lynch, or as you've so succinctly put it, baby Lynch, Lynchian. Is that not what I put? No, oh, no. <laughs> opening the Lynch box. Oh, the title of the episode, right? Opening the Lynch box, which I now want to change to baby Lynch. Baby Lynch. So, Katie, you're going to talk about Lynch's childhood for a little bit. I'll talk about. Um, how Lynch gets into filmmaking, and then we will both discuss uh, his first film, his first feature-length film, Eraserhead. Sure. Okay, so the thing that's fascinating about Lynch, I mean, there's so many different things, but what's most interesting is the fact that he seems so normal. Lynch uh, had the most conventional upbringing you can possibly imagine, Um, and countless interviewers are like, well, something must have happened. You must have stumbled across a dead body or something weird must have occurred uh, as you were growing up. But Lynch is like, no, I had a very normal 60s, 50-ish, you know, neighborhood, suburban upbringing. And where does he grow up? So he grows up kind of all over the place. He's born in um, Montana, Missoula, Montana. Uh, but then he goes, his father's a scientist um, working for the government and studying trees. 
Uh, so <laughs> even that just suddenly became less interesting. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, so they move um, after Montana. They move um, to Washington State temporarily in Idaho. Uh, interestingly enough, they were in Durham, North Carolina for a bit. Um, yeah, both of his parents went to Duke, actually. Whoa. Um, then they ended up in Alexandria, um, Virginia. And this is where we first get kind of a hint of the future Lynch. So we've got baby Lynch, who's very, you know, normal kid. He has a younger brother and a younger sister. Um, and he's an Eagle Scout, and that's an important thing for him. Um, one of the stories, I don't know if you heard this one, Sam. Um, as a Boy Scout... He was assigned to... Canoe. Yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> that's part of it. To um, work at a presidential inauguration, right? So he um, had to, like, just stand and be kind of a decorative figure as an Eagle Scout. And he's, I think it was he saw Nixon and Reagan and somebody else, or maybe Reagan's too. Reagan's way too later, but... Um, he yeah. saw like several presidents. Um, <laughs> he, was, he was like a, a full-on adult for Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> but that's true. Actually, the reason I said Reagan is because I was looking into his politics, but he was an avid supporter of Reagan back in the day. Voted for Reagan, yeah, and like did an event with Reagan or something. Oh. So Also, this is also making more sense to me. So the Eagle Scout posing with the president is like a genre. Mm -hmm. Because I was at a conference, and one of the people who attended the conference, their, like, bio pick was them as a kid in a Boy Scout uniform next really? to, like, Bill Clinton. <laughs> and, or maybe it's George Bush, even. And I just thought okay. that was strange, but... I didn't I know. No. I mean, if I would have known, I would have become an Eagle Scout or a Boy mm, Scout sorry. right away. No, no, that door is still not open to you. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> so. You could be a ladybug or a brownie. <laughs> <or> <laughs> I, was, I refused to join those organizations growing up. I thought that they were so lame because I felt like you just were meant to, like, sell things to your family. And it just, like, created awkward situations where you were like, please, uncle, buy these cookies, you know. <laughs> I know. Well, we were, we would do, like, drives in elementary school, and we were not allowed. Like, my mom did not allow us to, like, send, like, crap, like, wrapping paper cookies with my dad to work. Like, he was, <laughs> I don't know if it was considered, like, beneath us or something. My mom was like, no. Like, you don't ask people for their help or their money. So right. you never raise any money. You never get the prizes. No. The only thing I ever raised money for was when I was working at Sonic. Um, <laughs> wait, 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 this is not a childhood job. Though. No. Okay, sorry. Yeah, this is later. But there was this thing, this contest where whoever, like, gave out the most burrito coupons and people would bring them back to our store. Mm -hmm. We would write our names oh, yeah, on the like coupons. Yeah. yeah. Um, then we would win a prize, like, from the, like, big national Sonic place. Mm -hmm. And um, because my parents are roofers, they have to get midday snacks every day. So they were like, hell yeah, we're going to get some burritos. Um, <laughs> this is such a digression. I'm sorry I'm doing this. But um, anyway, so I won and I got a TV. Wait, like a TV? Like an actual, yeah. So wait, I'm trying to um, do the math. Would it be like a full box TV or are we in the era of flat screen? It's a, it's a box, okay. but it's a box with the DVD player built Whoa, into yeah. it. Yeah, so. I remember being very impressed by this. 
<laughs> so, also, do you ever listen to um, Molly McAleer's podcast that's like Mother May I Sleep With podcast? No. They just watch like Lifetime movies and then make fun of them. But she has oh, this God. long like rant on a recent one about being in the Girl Scouts and how much she hated it. <laughs> and she's like, she's so, like every day she, her mom would pick her up and she'd get in the car and her mom would be like, how was Girl Scouts? And she'd be like, how the fuck do you think it was? <laughs> just, just glued fucking felt together. <laughs> But anyway, God. so Lynch was an Eagle Scout, posed yeah. with multiple presidents, maybe. Yes, um, I know he did, but definitely not Reagan. Um, <laughs> so uh, that should be like a disclaimer in our show, which is that I do not know history at all. I have to watch those like CNN well, just know, like, deep, era deep biographies. History of like the early Renaissance. Period. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want to know about Queen Elizabeth, I gotcha. Mm. But um, okay, so. Lynch, um, the thing that's interesting about when he ends up in Virginia is um, he meets his friend um, named Toby Keeler. And Toby, um, his dad is a painter, like an artistic painter. So when Lynch first meets him, he's like, wait, do you mean a house painter? How can you make a living off of painting? Um, and this guy named Bushnell... Um, introduces Lynch essentially to what's called the art life. He gives him a book called The Art Life, um, which is this kind of spiritual, technical manual. Um, and Lynch decides, yes, I want to be a painter. I, that's what I want to do with my life. Um, so then you fast forward. He uh, first goes to Boston, um, to an art school in Boston. Doesn't really jive there. He decides with his friend Jack Fisk, who's going to play a big role later, uh, that they should uh, go to Europe for three years and work with this famous painter. They return after 15 days. <laughs> That's how American Lynch is, I feel like. That's how, I mean, yes, he was young and he, like, situations didn't work out and that's why he came back, but also... He's a young man, and he wants to come back to, you know, his roots, essentially. And this is where he ends up in Philadelphia, right? Yeah, so he, he works a few odd jobs at first, um, including, a, like, as a printer, which is interesting for Eraserhead. Um, gets fired from all of them. Lynch cannot stay awake during the day, apparently, um, which is why, like, partly why Eraserhead was filmed at night, wow. in part, yeah. So um, many of his movies are at night. I know, right? So, um... Then he, yeah, he ends up in Philadelphia, um, and this is where things get magical, right? Mm -hmm. um, so should I talk about the what happens in Philadelphia, or do you want to transition to the short films? I think I can take it from there. Okay. Um, first, were you ever fired from a job? No. Was I? No. No. I, no, me neither. Yeah. <laughs> we're so boring. I should have been fired from a couple jobs. I mean, I did terrible things. I, I know, like, stole too. Orange Street juice and stuff, so. <laughs> okay, so my first job when I was 15 was at Chick-fil-A in the mall. And, oh, <laughs> yeah, it was just, like, at once, like, the most quintessential and most terrible first job you could have. Yeah. But the, the owner, I guess we shouldn't say names, but he was very, very old. And <laughs> Just name he, him, like, Greg. <laughs> Greg. So, yeah, yeah. He would tell us all the time, like when he hired us, that you could eat food on the premises, like during your break. But if you ever took food, he would call the police and have you arrested. What? Yeah, it was really intense. That's crazy. And so every time, every night after he'd leave, we would then just load. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so I 
have eaten so many slices of like stolen Chick-fil-A cheesecake. <laughs> it wasn't even very good. My favorite Sonic, I have so many Sonic stories that people are going to hear throughout this podcast. My favorite Sonic story though is um, when I first started dating Ryan. Um, who is Ryan? Ryan is my husband. But one of my jobs was to make sure that the grill got cleaned. <laughs> And uh, so Ryan did not work at Sonic, but he's this like big beefy dude. So I asked him to like sneak in and clean the grill and he cleaned it too well. <laughs> so then like the ruse was up basically because my boss found out. There's that. like, you do not have the arms for this sort of like, Exactly. <laughs> okay. So, right, so um, Lynch's short films. Yeah, so David Lynch is in Philadelphia at this point. So in the short films of David Lynch, is this DVD that sort of compiles all of his early short films. Uh, Lynch explains that the impetus for his first film... I was looking at this painting, and I heard a wind, and I saw the, the painting you know, move a little bit. And that's what started the whole thing. I wanted to see a, a painting move and have sound. At the time, Lynch is a student, he's a painting student rather, at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. And in 1967, for an experimental art competition, he builds this like sculptured screen, it's six feet by eight feet, and then he animates uh, one minute of film, and it's projected on a loop onto the sculptured screen. And then like the video of the projection onto the sculpture becomes the short film. Yeah. That I saw, I guess like in real life, you just see both pieces, the whole apparatus. So in this loop, though, a siren's wailing, that's the only sound you hear, as the projected images of these six, like, sort of, like, abstracted men. So the, the art piece is called Six Figures Getting Sick. Right. And you just see sort of, like, animated heads connected by these, like, long esophageal lines down to these stomachs. And the stomachs are filled in with, like, white paint or wax. And then these candles are lit. You can see them just off screen. And then... Ugh. Yeah, you can see like then like the or I think it's the contents are white or they turn red and then the contents sort of just like soften and melt and pour out of the stomach outline and down the screen and then like the image sort of loops and repeats so then the stomach fills back up and then um, melts out again and you hear this just wailing siren the whole time. your response to watching this like just <sighs> Sam personally I mean all right I I agreed to research his short films <laughs> and then I remembered that like I really hate watching short films <laughs> why no I just it's hard for me to get and I love short stories but for short films it's really hard for me to make myself get invested when I know like this is going to be a very short relationship with mm -hmm. um <laughs> And short films tend to be more abstract and experimental, which I like the idea of liking, but I never mm -hmm. actually like yeah. that much. Yeah. So, and they just get weirder from here. So that one, <laughs> that project costs Lynch $200. And then Six Figures is unveiled, and in the audience is this wealthy artist named H. Barden Wasserman. Um, Wasserman loves Six Figures, and so he commissions Lynch by paying him $1,000 to create another projected art piece for Wasserman's home. So with the thousand dollars, Lynch buys a camera, and then he takes two months to film about two and a half minutes of film to project onto another sculpted canvas, 
However, when the film's developed, he discovers that the produced film's blank. Alas. I know. It's unclear where things went wrong, but the point is that whatever Lynch filmed or thought he had filmed was just gone. Hmm. Which is really horrifying to me. <laughs> like, people who like write a lot. Yeah, you know, like, just a blank page yeah, suddenly. That's like I'm having a problem with um, Mac Mal right now, where they keep deleting my drafts, <gasps> and it's been infuriating. No, that's not okay. Did you hear, by the way, that one of our professors' homes was robbed? No. Yeah, and they stole his computer, <gasps> and he told me that he had months worth of notes for chapters for his upcoming no. book. That's the most heartbreaking <laughs> yeah. thing. Steal a baby. <laughs> take whatever. Take kids. Like, take all those things that just leech on you. Like, yes, but not the computer. So, <laughs> I have dreams. Sorry. I yeah. have dreams about the apocalypse coming and me like grabbing my pug in one hand and my laptop in another. And that's just like what I take with me. <laughs> and let's be clear, like, you're not abandoning kids. You have no children. Yeah, so this, this is, is true. Not, yeah, we th- should be clear. This is not a full-on, like, Sophie's Choice. But no, but, like, if you're drowning at the same time as, as I have, the, like... As Lady McPug. Yeah, then Lady McPug wins. Whose silhouette is part of our logo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so... All right, so not only does Lynch have to deal with the disappointment of losing two months of work, he also has to break the news to Wasserman that he's wasted all this money. Mm-hmm. Um, and Wasserman takes it surprisingly well. So according to David Hughes, who writes a book on Lynch... Um, Lynch, in the middle of breaking the news, looks up to find Wasserman smiling. Unfazed by the fate of his commission, Wasserman gives Lynch carte blanche to take the rest of his money and do whatever he wants. What is, who is this dude who's just I like, yeah. Maybe he saw him as like himself as like a mentor. And I'm he's this like, rich dude. This happens in, in art. <laughs> you <laughs> so, just lose your shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, actually um, lose it. <laughs> and so he just, it was this, I don't know, seems like a very nice sort of gracious act. And Where says, well, is he in my life? I, we, we could all use an H. Barton Wasserman. <laughs> so it's from this disaster and from the remaining money, is a few hundred dollars left, that uh, Lynch films The Alphabet. At the time, Lynch is married to a fellow Philadelphia art student, Peggy Reevy. So I guess Peggy Lynch. So Peggy tells him a story that ultimately becomes the inspiration for the short film. So uh, Peggy uh, went to her parents' house for a visit and her little niece was there, and I think in a darkened room in a in a, a little bed and was having a nightmare and repeating the alphabet over and over in this nightmare. And so Peggy told me about this, uh, and it um, must have, you know, triggered something, and that uh, was what uh, I went to work on is um, the alphabet based on uh, Peggy's niece's nightmare, or my imaginings of it. So the alphabet is weird. (laughs) And you get the sense from watching these early films that Lynch has always been Lynch. Uh, The moving images we see in these shorts correspond so naturally to the most striking imagery of his later, like, feature film career. Um, Really the only thing missing at this point is the narrative. It seems like the narrative and the stories really come later, but these just strange evocations have always been there. What's interesting, too, is you get this first hint that Lynch is so awkward with language, that language is something frightening, and to learn or to... Like be forced to kind of be in this setting where like you have to acquire certain knowledge 
is so anti-lunch because he wants he wants things to be dreamlike and but delightfully dreamlike. So are you like basing that off of like interviews you've seen? Yeah, interviews, but also um, I think what he said, and for example, catching the big fish, he said he said I think um, I was pre-verbal until about twenty-one. Have you heard I that mean, quote? Yeah. Weren't we all? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was fully articulate. Clearly, I, I said births earlier. <laughs> right, here's one um, summary of the alphabet. This is again from Hughes. A girl lies in bed as we hear children chanting the alphabet. On abstract animated landscapes, letters from A to Z appear as a man with an authoritative voice, like that of a teacher, sings indistinctly. A capital A appears to give birth to several lowercase a's. A distorted female figure reacts in shock as letters force their way into her head. The girl seen in bed earlier reacts violently. Blood streams from the eyes and mouth of her animated counterpart. The girl in bed attempts to reach various letters floating just behind or beyond her grasp as a female voice chants the alphabet song. Finally, she falls back on the bed, writhing and vomiting blood. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. And here's a little bit of, of what that short sounds like. Please remember, you are dealing with a human form. After the alphabet is completed, Lynch's friend Bushnell Keeler encourages Lynch to apply for a grant from the American Film Institute. This is out on the West Coast. So Lynch does, sending along with his application a copy of the alphabet, along with a script for his next short called The Grandmother. I think the script is only like 8 or 12 pages long. Mm. And the AFI director awards Lynch the grant, um, though he does lower the amount. So Lynch requests $7,118, and they uh, say they'll give him 5000 even. So in 1970, Lynch completes The Grandmother. This is another weird one. I mean... <laughs> I, I just I feel like I'm not it. the person. To, oh, okay. So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna be the devil's advocate here. All right. Because so I will say what it's about, and you can tell me. <laughs> uh, it's about this weird, like, faintly abusive and explicitly dysfunctional family, right? So mm-hmm. mother, father, young son, and then another one of these weird abstract openings that switches between animation and live action. But then, like, I guess the, the sort of narrative portion of it starts when, like, the young boy wakes up in bed and notices, like, a stain. Like, sort of like he's maybe, like, wet the bed. Yeah. Um, but it's, like, what, bright orange, right? Mm-hmm. And then he tries to hide it under covers, but his father comes in and finds it anyway. And he, like, grabs the sun and shoves his face <laughs> in the stain. That's what you do with a dog. I know. That's, <laughs> that's, that's my objection. Um, the son is then called into the other room by the mother who, like, has, it wants to hug her, him, sort of, but mm-hmm. then, like, almost abuses. Like, it's like this sort of love that's yeah. dangerous or something and yeah. really manic. Um, and so you get the sense that these parents suck. Um, <laughs> it's a terrible family situation. And we'll get more on that in Eraserhead. So the son then plants seeds and soil over the stain on the bed and eventually grows this, like, distended tree root that ultimately births the titular grandmother. Yeah, and he like gives delivered out. birth yeah. to his grandmother. That's what's well, interesting. He's, he's like a midwife, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. But like he's pulling yeah, her yeah, out right. of the concave thing. Yeah, also weird is that they uh, 
fucking kiss on the lips at one point. So, <laughs> so the two frolic and they sort of like gallivant. Like, and then in this animated sequence, they kill the parents. Yes. And I'm not sure if the parents are dead for a while mm-hmm. until the grandmother starts dying herself. Like mm-hmm. she makes this like wheezing like tea kettle noise. She's whistling. She's whistling to death. Wait, what? Yeah, that's how she's she dies. She's inviting it. Yeah, well, she, she starts whistling. Oh, I see. Whistling. Yeah, right, right. But it doesn't seem like she wants to. No, well, she starts whistling joyfully, but then, like... Can't stop. Yeah, that's how I <laughs> yeah, think. Yeah, and then I mean, he runs out to get his parents help, and they refuse the help. And that's when he realized, mm-hmm. like, this is a fantasy he's been living in, and this fantasy is coming to an end, and he right. can't, he's powerless to stop it. Right. And so Grandma dies, and he, like, goes to the, the, the graveyard, the burial site, to, like, mourn her. And then has to go back home to his shitty family. Yeah. Yeah. I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. So, uh, can I say why? Yeah. Why? So, I liked it because, um, A, I think it's beautifully done. I think the colors are just kind of arresting. I have a fun fact about that. Um, Um, That he wanted it in... He sort of wanted a black and white aesthetic, but also wanted colors, so he paints the entire interior black and gives them all really pale makeup, so that then, like, the yeah. color, like, really pops. When you and see that's it. his house. That's his house in Philly. Oh, really? Yeah, it's the third floor of his house. So he, like, for some reason, got this really huge house for very cheap in a not-so-great neighborhood in Philly. Um, and so he just painted the entire so third floor black. My little sister black. did that. Now her neighborhood's blown up. Oh, sweet. Yeah, she yeah. didn't paint her house black, but... I mean, she, she should. Made, she made some good life choices otherwise. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, I love it for for the aesthetic. I also think that it's a more hopeful short than maybe you've casted as. So, the power of imagination, the power of... The unsustainable power of imagination. <laughs> well, well, that's an interesting thing, right? So, does the boy... If the grandmother is entire, entirely a figment of his imagination... Does then he kill her off? Like he chooses to yeah, move on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he seems pretty sad about yeah, the ending. Yeah, that's true. Also, his imagination like there's a there's like a, a definitive limit to what he's able to imagine. He like cannot he cannot murder. As, he cannot yeah imagine anything outside of like familial violence. True. True. And incest, I guess. Yeah. Again, they kiss. It's really. I mean. Surprising to me. But like old people are just. <laughs> Okay, let's just let's let's not let's just go into file it. that under old people. <laughs> okay. We get sued for ageism. Um, okay, so we'll just go on and say the grandmother. It goes on to win uh, prizes at a number of film festivals, including the American Film Institute's own Critics' Choice Award. Uh, and okay, I have to read this verbatim because it's confusing. Critics' Choice Award of an AFI panel voting on the twelve best filmmakers to have been awarded grants. Okay, yeah. Which makes me wonder, like, how many grants they awarded. Yeah, I don't know. hundred? What if they only awarded, like, 14? <laughs> <laughs> and, like, and the top 12 are... Too bad. <laughs> uh, the two guys are just, I don't know. Um. <laughs> so, following the grandmother, uh, Lynch is still at the American Film Institute working on Eraserhead. Uh, that film, though, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, it takes five years to make, and it runs out of money mid-production in 1973. Actually, I read this on IMDb Trivia, but after he runs out of money, Terrence Malick screens the film for a potential financial backer. Yeah. And he wa- the backer walks out because he thinks he calls the film bullshit. No, the, the, can I reproduce what the yes. like backer says? He's like, 
this is not how people behave. This is not right. And then Storm, that's the quote I read, apparently. Oh, I thought like, you saw this on film. You're no, no. <laughs> Someone reenacted it. Um, no, um, I read that somewhere, so. Awesome. So then during a razorhead suspension, Lynch learns from cine cinematographer Frederick Elms that Elms has been tasked with testing two different stocks of black and white videotape. So Lynch asks, if it makes no difference, can I film something as a test for the two stocks? Um, so sure. Lynch promises to write a short film script and shoot it twice, once on each stock. So he stays up all night with Catherine Coulson, who was the assistant director for Eraserhead. And the log I lady. No, you steal my thunder. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I just wanted to throw that out. No, I'm sorry. it's fine. So he stays up all night with Catherine Coulson, his eventual co-star in this short film, The Amputee. Um, and they plan the short, and the next morning they film it. So yes, Catherine Coulson becomes very important to David Lynch sort of uh, mythology because she plays the log lady in Twin Peaks. And she's married to Jack Nance, right? No, wait, no, no, no. no. Who's married to Jack Nance? I forget. Damn it, it's somebody else, but it's somebody else important is married to Jack Nance. Mm. Oh, you're right. Uh, we'll look it up later and add it to show notes because okay. I, I read an interview with her actually like last week. Yeah, um, but I they both end up on Twin Peaks, so that's awesome. Anyways, and fun fact: um, my aunt looks just like the log lady. <laughs> like I've, I've done Does side by side like comparisons in my family for fun, <laughs> and everyone agrees she's like looks. It's like almost indistinguishable. <laughs> If we ever get listeners and listeners ask for it, I will try and get her permission to post a photo for Please her. Please do. I'll show because it's insane. Oh, that's um, amazing. But the amputee. So the film uses a single camera setup and starts only Coulson and Lynch. Coulson plays an amputee, who's also, I think, the first sort of physically disabled character in Lynch's film canon. Mm. Though he, that becomes like a, a, a really central motif in so much of so many of his films after right. this. Yeah. And then Lynch is the nurse who arrives to change Coulson's leg bandages. So as the nurse like really bloodily changes the woman's bandages, mm. like it's like sort of like gushing blood at times. She Coulson in voiceover rereads a letter that describes her place in this tangled web of relationships. Viewers are never given enough information to know exactly what happened or how all of these people fit together, um, but we do know that lies are being told between these people. People were unfaithful or deceptive, and the short rings a lot of irony out of this juxtaposition of the treatment of emotional and physical scars. Mm. Let's listen to some of the letter. The background, by the way, of sounds of, of like a door opening, of running water, of paper towels, that's all the nurse entering and preparing to change the bandages. This isn't what I am telling you. You weren't in the room when Jim said that, and I was, and he really did. He told me that everything was fine between Helen and him, and I knew that even if he didn't say it, that it was true. He knew it then. No one else did. You maybe thought you did, but I knew you didn't. And it makes me furious when you tell me I didn't know about Helen. After amputee, he finally finishes Eraserhead, which brings us to 
Eraserhead. Eraserhead. Um, we should say, so it ultimately takes five years to make. There are two versions of this film. So the version was originally 20 minutes longer. It gets sort of bad reception and Lynch cuts it down. So I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. the only available version is the one that's 20 minutes shorter. Yeah, I'm sure that's the one I saw. Um, Do you want to, in your own words... Katie, tell us what oh this movie gosh. is about. Gosh, how? We can just yeah, yeah. How does one summary, do this? And then we can go like sort of scene by scene. Yeah, no, this is beautiful. Um, so the basic premise is there's um, this lonely youngish man named Henry. He's played by Jack Nance, uh, who's oh, um, just quick disclaimer. I for my entire life thought that was Tim Robbins. <laughs> <laughs> like when I was working at a film store in high school, I would stock this movie and be like, oh, it's Tim Robbins with a crazy haircut. <laughs> So I'm glad oh. it's not, because I kind of, I don't really like Tim Robbins. I find him really no, annoying. No, I mean, he's creepy. Um, he's creepy. Yeah, I think he's creepy. But oh, I don't know if he's creepy. I, he's just annoying. Yeah. So do you see, like, okay, so I should back up and say that I have this weird habit of, I always watch, like, movie trailers, like, daily, like, check these two sites. Do you I watch like, Flickster? Do you go to Flickster? No, I don't go to oh, Flickster. okay. And then I also, maybe in tandem with that, I follow every film festival religiously, wow. but then I never go to the movies to actually <laughs> see them. So I think I just am someone who really is getting caught up in, in hype. But um, <laughs> but I don't have the commitment to actually sit through like a sustained feature film. So you hate short films, but also love kind of short like, trailers. Yeah, I think we're really making some progress here. <laughs> We've got to dive into this. But I just remember, in, maybe I was in high school, I guess, this tradition goes way back. Um, I saw this film trailer for a Tim Robbins film. I can't remember if he directed it or wrote it or if he just starred in it, but it was about him living in New York and being so tired of people making noise and people's car alarms going off that he just becomes this crazy person who roams around the streets of New York at night, like smashing people's cars when they go <laughs> off with a baseball bat. And like, that was that the moment where I was great. just like, I think I just don't like this guy. <laughs> I find him really annoying. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. He seems like a hero to me. (laughs) Destroying property. But fair enough. Okay, so it's not Tim Robbins. It's not. It's It's someone named Jack Nance. Jack Nance, who um, relatively undiscovered at this point. Um, So he was a little wary of signing on with Lynch. And in fact, they didn't get along in their first kind of interview meeting thing. But uh, as they were leaving, Jack was like, hey, look at that cool uh, rack on top of this Volkswagen. And as he did, Lynch was like, yeah, that's mine. We're good. So <laughs> they became best friends. So do we want to talk about... So I think the original task was to summarize the Oh, movie. shoot. <laughs> yeah. So we know all about we... Jack Nance as Henry. Yes. Okay. Sorry. I am obsessed with Jack Nance. Um, there's a documentary called I Don't Know Jack that I need to watch. It's just about Jack Nance? Yeah. And oh. they try to contact him uh, from the dead because you know he, he died. died. Yeah. yeah. Um, Are they successful? I don't know. I need to watch this thing. Um, yeah, I guess you, you wouldn't reveal that if you wanted people to watch your movie. Yeah, it's very hard to find online. But okay. um, we'll anyways, so this guy named Henry <laughs> who lives in this desolate uh, landscape, and we'll ta- we can talk more about the environment yeah. in a bit. Um, it's clearly, you know, this industrial place. Um, we we know now that it's, pro- it's meant to be like represent Philadelphia, right? Yeah, can I just um, read a quick line from Dennis Lim's book? Oh, yeah. On David Lynch? Go for it. This is <laughs> the first sentence of a new chapter. 
The setting of a Razorhead is never named, but there is no mistaking this infernal wasteland for anywhere but Philadelphia. <laughs> Thanks. Like, you know, I kind of take offense at that, but... <laughs> Everyone who loves Philly is like, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I should say, just like a disclaimer, that I talk a lot about my love for Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Grew up just outside of Philadelphia. This is not the Philadelphia that I know, so this is right. not the, the, the place that I love. You weren't alive in the 70s. Well, and this was L.A. anyway. Yeah. I was actually yeah. filming it. Yeah, true. So take that, David. Dennis Lim. <laughs> Dennis Lim talking about crappy Philadelphia. Um, but it's certainly this kind of industrial wasteland, um, and Henry lives in this very tiny apartment. It's really just a room. Okay, um, that, that apartment building, by the way, looks like kind of urban gothic or something mm-hmm. like like if the adams family home like if gomez like <laughs> foreclosed and it was turned into apartments like that's what yeah. it looks like <laughs> i mean i kind of like his little bitty room though it seems pretty pretty cozy mm-hmm. i mean i wouldn't want this evil not evil but fetus baby thing in there no. but you know he's got a radiator he's got a bed it's all good yeah. that um, baby is no good <laughs> that baby is no good it's like, um it's like like E.T.'s mother had an abortion. <laughs> <laughs> it's so gross. Can that be the new title of our episode? All right, so we should say we can just go scene by scene. Though. Yeah, I'm so, sorry. No, no, you're fine. Botched this summary. <laughs> so uh. um, Henry has this really seemingly like isolated, lonely life. He doesn't talk at all for like the first twenty minutes. Yeah. And then we find out that he has some sort of entanglement relationship with this young woman it's not even clear if they're even dating mm-hmm. or if he's just sort of pursuing her if they were dating all we know is that like they haven't been speaking for a while and then she invites him over to dinner mm-hmm. it's a super awkward family dinner oh i love it it's the best scene in the movie <laughs> so the family dinner so henry you know goes and so this young woman's named mary um and their last name are the x's like the letter x um, so Mary um, invites him over, and as he comes in, it's the most awkward, awkward encounter with first the the mother. Um, yeah. So what is I, I meant to write this down and I didn't. Where the the what's the girlfriend's na- name again? Mary. Mary. Mary is like Henry's really smart, and she's like, if you say so. Oh and yeah. Like, <laughs> like it is difficult enough to meet like the parents of someone you're right. dating without that kind of sass. So. Yeah. No, she's super sass. But then let's get to um, oh, later when she makes out with them. Convulsing. Yeah. So Mary has an epileptic fit. Yeah. Um, and which can only be cured by brushing her hair. Exactly. That's the only way to fix <laughs> that. The only way. This um, is sound medical advice. And people at home. Also in the background. Uh, the most horrifying noise of, what is it, like 10 puppies suckling their mother? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's awful. When I first watched this film, I thought it was just like a bunch of rats, like the sound of rats, until you actually see the dog yeah. and her pups. Um, so they're yeah, sitting mean... on the couch. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. So they're sitting on the couch, and then Bill walks in. Who's just like the happiest... The craziest. Really yeah. <laughs> this is this true. Manic smile on his face. Yeah. So Bill is Mary's father. Um, this tiny man, and he's a plumber, um, and he's prepped these chickens for so, dinner. <laughs> before we even get to the the quails, oh. I did not know if Mary's mother was her mother until they went into the kitchen. 
Like, I didn't know if she was the mother or the grandmother. And then you go oh. to the kitchen, and you're like, oh, no, that's the grandmother. <laughs> who's that's just this woman with no lines who sits in a wheelchair next to the stove and is, like, used as counter space. Yes. <laughs> so, like, they prepare a dish on her. And then yeah. it's, like, this reward they give her a cigarette to smoke. Yeah, yeah, which she doesn't actually smoke, it seems like. It just or, like, seems, like, yeah. hand there in her mouth. <laughs> and I just thought, I assumed that I wasn't paying attention that she had been wheeled out to the... To the dining room table for no. dinner. She was just off screen, but at the table. No. But then they go back in the kitchen like a solid 20 minutes later. <laughs> She's, She's still there. there. I know. It's so mean. <laughs> yeah, so the, the, the father prepares these individual like quails for everyone at the table. No, he calls them chickens, man. Oh, does he? Yeah. Oh. But they're like. Um, Very tiny. They're, you know, like genetically modified. Like game hens. Yeah, crazy, just baked chickens, right? Um, so, anyways. Awkward table scene, Henry carbs. What happens when he carbs? <laughs> the chickens just like spout blood. It's disgusting. And the legs like dance Move. around. <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know if they're like writhing in agony or what. And they make this like <laughs> noise. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, and then the mom requests to speak with Henry one on one. Exactly. And this we'll is the, this. the. We're going to play this scene. Did you and Mary have sexual intercourse? Did you? Why are you asking me this question? I have a very good reason. And now I want you to tell me. I, I'm very... Uh, I love Mary. Henry, I asked you if you and Mary had sexual intercourse. Well, I don't, I, I don't think that's any of your business. Henry! I... Sorry. You're in very bad trouble if you won't cooperate. Well, I... I... Mary? There's some weird family dynamics yeah, going on here. What you may not have heard was that during this talk, uh, she starts to make out with him. Yeah. Much like the grandmother in the short <laughs> film we watched for this. Like I said, old people can just File put their mouths wherever they, just, they want. It's if, um. if one thing is true, it's that the elderly <laughs> tend to put their mouths wherever they want. That's <laughs> oh, can I tell a quick elderly person story? So, um, I should clarify that I, I love everyone I talk about <laughs> in this, unless I say that I hate them. Um, so my father's mother, whom we call me mom, I know, love I her to death. Um, JD Vance's Hillbilly Elegy, and oh, I yeah. so badly want to call my grandma Mama now. A Mama? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mama is fun. I don't think she'd accept that. <laughs> Probably not. You're... Is she from the North, too? Yeah. Yeah. Philadelphia. Yeah. That see? industrial wasteland. Right. <laughs> exactly. So, um, anyways, my brother and I, um, one day, my parents weren't home, and we had this, like, brand new fresh watermelon, and we were but so Mima excited. Mima shows up. So we cut the watermelon in half, like, as if it were a bowl, yes. and um, we put one half in the fridge, and we're getting ready my brother and I to eat like with separate spoons yeah, and eat right. out of it. Mima comes over with like a cigarette dangling from her hand, you know, that's like a foot long of ash basically. Um, 
and she was like, oh, watermelon. And she like takes both of her hands, one of them with the cigarette still in it, and just like scoops out <laughs> parts of the watermelon and starts eating it in front of us. That's and we were like, no. <laughs> <laughs> we were horrified. She's such a sweet lady, but she did not understand that this was. That's like a bear with honey, is what you're saying? Just like... <laughs> exactly. That's incredible. Ah, like me when I eat wings, you know? Yeah, it's yeah, just right. like disgusting. Um, I mean, that's me when I eat anything, I guess. <laughs> like, I really can't throw stones here, but. Um, <laughs> I read too that <laughs> this guy that. Um, if you like find that you burp a lot after you eat, I don't think this is TMI. It's because you're uh, a bad eater. It's because oh, you eat like so you quickly ate. that you're swallowing air as you're burping <laughs> out of food. And I was like, wow, it's really come to this. <laughs> like that's how badly I eat food. When I visited Italy with Ryan, we would sit and eat, and like our food would arrive. We would take like five minutes to eat, and then the waiter wouldn't come back for like two hours because like people, oh, I hate that. yeah, when I was you in know, Paris, in Italy. <laughs> Um, so anyways, uh, let's get back to oh, yeah. the, let's, it's time, I think, to talk about Yeah, so as the, the mother said, um, Mary is pregnant, they need to get hitched and raise this baby. Mm -hmm. So then we see this baby, we see aborted ET fetus. Yep. And it is. It's horrifying. Okay, can I say too, so I read that, you know, David Lynch says he does have an interpretation of this film in his mind, but mm -hmm. no one has hit on it. We'll talk more about that later. Have but you one, hit on it? I don't know. He oh. doesn't confirm for me. He's, <laughs> okay. he's not returning my thoughts. I mean, um, he will. He will. But, but he said that, or he didn't say this, but, or he's admitted that this is partly an inspiration was that his own daughter, Jennifer Lynch, was born before they started making the movie with clubbed feet, and that may have been oh. an inspiration. No, but, <laughs> If you're Jennifer Lynch and you think, okay, yeah. you know, I was born with this um, issue with my feet. It's been medically resolved. I know this is something of an inspiration for this film called Eraserhead. <laughs> and you go to see it and, like, that pussy like, Rorschach test is the yeah. symbol of your clubbed feet. Like, I would be so pissed off about that. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Well, and you know, she went on to be a director in her own right, so she's mm -hmm. doing fine. Boxing yeah. Helena? Yeah, Helena? yeah, yeah. So she's all right. She's, mm. she's recovered from that horrifying, you know, Although image of her infancy. In that movie, doesn't like that woman lose her feet? I haven't seen it. I don't. I think she gets oh. boxed till like limbs are removed. Oh, no. Yeah, so maybe. Again, continuing yeah. the issue with bodily deformations with yeah. the Lynch family. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Put a pin on that. We might come back to that. But let's talk more about this thing. So the Lynch fans everywhere are obsessed with what Lynch actually made. Uh, the calf. Oh, I just gave away one of the answers. The baby thing from. And one of the theories, right, is that it is a calf fetus. Yeah. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in Lynch on Lynch, the interviewer asks Lynch, what about the baby? How is it made? And he simply says, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> so he, he refuses. refuses to tell anyone. I love it. Um, well, he said elsewhere, too, you know, that would ruin part. Like, Lynch is so anti interpretation. Um, so, yeah, maybe there is. Or, or like, anti solution. Like yeah. Figured out. Right. Like, you can talk about it and you can 
you can react to his work, obviously, but there's no like definitive psychoanalytic reading and there's no answer to what the heck that thing that represents a baby is in the film. But we should say they're now both living with this baby in his one bedroom apartment. Tiny. And Mary, am I being too harsh on her by saying she's sort of a bad mother? No, I mean. Because she's kind of the worst in my mind. Like she put, <laughs> it's, maybe it's because she's only in that one scene, but you get the sense that she's put like five minutes into this and then was like, mm, yeah. this is not for me. I mean, clearly. I mean, she does say, she's like, I haven't slept in nights or something. Yeah, but I like. I just want sleep. Henry's on vacation, so he, it hasn't been that long because he's still yeah, technically right. on vacation, unless he actually doesn't have a job or like. So got we're in fired. agreement that Mary's the worst. She's the worst. She yells at this creature baby to shut up. Oh, yeah, it's awful, um, and like you kind of feel pity for this little yeah, for sure. mewling being that's at least alive, even though it looks really strange. And so Mary quickly leaves the picture, and it then just becomes. A film about Henry sort of in his own mental state and isolated in this room with this baby. And I it mean, just gets increasingly strange. I from there it's just different iterations to me at least of fantasies of infanticide, right? Like different the woman yeah. in the radiator, um Well and the, then, yeah, so there's a woman in the radiator who is this um, actual singer, but they've like put this what would you call like um like prosthetics on her cheeks to they make look her like look tumors distended yeah and she sings a song called um in heaven as she steps on these worms that keep dropping on the stage and she's sort of like disgustingly crushing them with her feet and the mm -hmm. worms seem somewhat related to the baby itself additional babies maybe More right babies just yeah everywhere because there is one scene where one of so he gets like a little bitty fetus i think in the mail or something or oh, it shows yeah, right. up and he like chunks it and <laughs> yeah. then there's this stop motion cut where or scene where the like fetus like runs outside and buries itself in the ground mm -hmm. and like you get the sense that like it's gonna just regenerate more yeah. and more when you see him planting soil on his bureau almost like in the grandmother as yeah. well like there's a risk that he's gonna be growing something else too and, yeah yeah and so then his neighbor who's this sort of attractive woman that he talks to like in early in the film he opens the door into the hallway and sees her bringing this other man home and then has this extended fantasy where she wants him and wants to like live I think that happened you think that's a fantasy I guess I, th I saw it as like him creating this sort of again justification for killing the baby like oh. if the baby weren't here like that's what's standing between me and having this woman oh because I see. they're trying to get it done and she's sort of keeps getting distracted and annoyed by this like wailing baby true I don't know I she seems pretty desperate, though. I think she she might have been into yeah. in, into Henry. Into, into the Nance. Yeah. Even with this weird alien <laughs> thing in the room. <laughs> That's a way to, like, kill the mood. <laughs> yeah. Hey, baby. I've got this uh, thing in the corner. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, so. But she ultimately gets impatient and leaves, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a little foggy for me because I saw it's like a week ago. Well, she. Um, oh yeah, and then he goes, goes into, into the, the radiator. Bath. Yeah, mm -hmm. he goes into the radiator dream space, and his head pops off, and the the baby's head grows into his body. <laughs> yes. Yep. Um, oh, and then the head we follow the head as it goes on an adventure, a journey. Right. It falls out the window. A little boy picks it up. Mm -hmm. Takes it to a factory. 
uh, they bring it to this back room. This mm-hmm. guy drills into it or yeah, pokes it's, into it's it. It's upsetting. Um, and that's what makes pencil erasers. Which Yay. I got really excited because early in the notes, like maybe 20 minutes in, I wrote, is this movie just called Eraserhead because his hair kind of looks like an eraser? <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, it's because of no, this. But then there's... I also was like, wait, but what is this? <laughs> so. I don't know. No okay. one knows. Um, okay, so... The, the oh, also, too, we see the pencils being made, and then we see them, like, assembly line pass, like, a pencil tester mm-hmm. who has to make sure they work. And he uses the eraser for so long, though. <laughs> that is like, it's not a very effective eraser. Yeah, that works beyond the boundaries of what a tester should do. Because yeah. if I got an eraser that was that well used, I would be upset about <laughs> it. So that, like, he, I was very does suddenly dwell on by that. erasing yeah. for quite a bit of time. Okay, and so then he wakes up from this nightmare of his head being lopped mm-hmm. off, and then he goes to his window and witnesses uh, a crime. Mm-hmm. And then he kills his own baby. And then he kills his baby. He opens up the gauze, kind of encasing this thing, yeah. and it's clear that like this baby. It's not clear to where the line is between the gauze and like an outer layer of yeah. skin. Like if he's also cutting open the baby while he's doing it. But it seems like the baby would disintegrate without the gauze. Like, regardless of stabbing yeah. it, right? Like because it then would, he stabs it. Yeah. Oh, he does stab it. And then it, then it foams up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and finally, an asteroid hits the Earth, and everything is in heaven. Everything is fine. Yeah. That's the song. <laughs> in heaven. We should play a clip of that. Okay, we will. Also, does it come full circle then? Because the credit sequence opens with... Jack Nance is, like, he's lying on the ground, and then, like, a superimposition of, like, one of those worms sort of floats out of his mouth. And then this is all witnessed by this stranger... Creator thing. Creator figure gazing down from a window. But it looks like the window of his apartment. Mm, Maybe. That figure is played by Jack Fisk, who at the time was married to Sissy Spacek. Fun fact. I think I'm confused. I thought Sissy Spacek was married to Jack Nance. No. I don't know who's married to Jack Nance. We're going to find that out. We we will find that out. We should do some more research (laughs) about Jack Nance. We'll get better about this as we go. (laughs) Okay, so so that's the film in its glory, in its Lynchian glory. If you had to tell us what this is about, what would you say? You've seen this multiple times. I think it's about the importance of contraceptives. I think that giving birth to anything is horrifying and that one should never procreate. (laughs) Just don't do it. Again, Jennifer Lynch, don't take this to heart, (laughs) but the kids are the worst. (laughs) Um, But I also think, just to go back to the environment thing, I think it's... Lynch is very interested in the in, like environmental influences upon the psyche, and specifically like an industrial environment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So these like very claustrophobic spaces and loud spaces. Yeah, like, you're always hearing like the hiss of the steam heater or like ambient factory noises coming in through the window or well, traffic. And Bill says, you know, like people just think that pipes grow, but you know, I have to put them in, and like his house is covered in these loud yeah. pipes. It's great. Um, so yeah, I think it's for me. Impressions were were twofold, focusing on kind of the horrors of the creature itself, but also the ways in which like the environment is kind of impending on or kind of pushing Henry down. Well, so given the topic of our podcast, maybe we should spend some time speculating on why Eraserhead obsesses so many <laughs> yeah. people. 
Because we should say, yeah. um, it's really interesting. I was going to look up a bunch of like critics' reviews for this movie, mm-hmm. but all of the reviews by popular critics, like, say, Roger Ebert, are written 20 years after this film comes out. Or, right. Um, that, that this film's not really discovered until it's rediscovered. Mm-hmm. Um, its original reception is as rapturous, but only by like the Midnight Film Circuit um, crew of moviegoers. Yeah. So it has this sort of cult following that really um, people fall in love with or or very young or amateur filmmakers love, but it doesn't reach the mainstream at all. Right, But right. Uh, all to say, it doesn't make the following any less ardent, though. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what do you think? Do you think that now or today, you, Sam, probably wouldn't watch Eraserhead unless you were obsessed with other Lynchian products? So if David Lynch retired after Eraserhead? Yes. Yeah, I don't think I would. Yeah, I don't think I would either. Because I'm definitely, I feel obsessed with later Lynch films. Oh, yeah. I watch over and over again. Mm-hmm. But I think there is something maybe historical, and I should know more about this since this is my field, but <laughs> yeah. I don't. <laughs> but I'm trying to think of, yeah, what are, you know, this is part of, so late 60s, early 70s are the sort of um, second golden age of Hollywood, right? Where we have like a mm-hmm. second generation of these astounding filmmakers who are creating a real voice uh, and Scorsese, Spielberg, Spielberg yeah, around, so, yeah, well, you know. Yeah, or, or like, um, and just Hoover, gr- you think yeah. of like the yeah, grittier 70s movies, or like mm-hmm. Bonnie and Clyde, yeah. um, that's up for best picture at the same year that like Elizabeth Taylor is still trying to like get an Oscar, <laughs> right, where you just have this yeah. weird clash of like where it becomes so apparent that like old Hollywood is old and there's like a, there's a new set of, of people coming up to take those positions and I don't know. Eraserhead even uh, tries to even like outweird those films oh, as yeah. much as those films are trying to be gritty and, and successfully are right. Mm-hmm. Really trying to capture uh, a feeling and uh, a cultural feeling well, part of the seventies. This is just getting even strangers, pushing those boundaries even further. Yeah, I think part of it's that you know Lynch himself has claimed I'm not you know a film buff. I'm not mm-hmm. like really versed in what makes a film successful. So to deviate from that is so much easier for him because it's just, you know, I think that's why people love Lynch in part because like it's avant-garde because it's, it doesn't know it's avant-garde as much say as like a Fellini or something like Mm -hmm. that, right? I don't know, it's endearing in a way. And then you think too, this is his first feature film. It's pretty like incredible for sustaining a project for five years, this labor of love. Mm shoestring budget and yet there I think there's one story that Lynch has where like Nance is walking down the hall and then they had to stop production and a year and a half later he walks through the door like from <laughs> like so he was able to kind of like push this through uh, based on you know personality and drive and I think that's part yeah. of why people love Lynch because he's uncompromising well and I think you make a really a good point or interesting one that I should think about more that part of what I fixate on when I watch a lot of his movies is whether this is super amateurish, right? And that, mm-hmm. like, he doesn't have, you're right, like, that vocabulary of, like, cinematic psychology, right? Yeah. He doesn't psychologize characters in any sort of legible way for the most part. Mm-hmm. That's not totally true, but at least in, like, these early films. Yeah. But 
Yeah, so is this amateurish or is this like someone who's just speaking a language I have not learned yet, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I just find myself like oscillating between those two poles a lot of the time and sort of unable to settle on one. Yeah. So we certainly don't know how to make sense of this movie, so we thought we'd turn to uh, some of the more gonzo interpretations we found online. Um, these are taken from IMDB, from Reddit, and from a couple people's own personal websites. So <laughs> I love them. Maybe you could you could like help me read this. So <laughs> this is a conversation on IMDb between uh, Kimanesh and the other user's name is not an undercover cop. <laughs> so, okay. So Kimanesh titles the thread post. This movie should have been named Crackhead. <laughs> so he writes. Did anyone else think that this movie was a movie related to drug addiction and eventual suicide? <laughs> In my opinion, the entire premise of this movie setup seems to revolve around the protagonist's head as he perceives his surrounding under the influence of drugs. You notice that he has this worm which is kept inside a small box, which he hides it from his wife and places it um, in the cupboard. That syntax is very like Buffalo Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Later we see that this worm is seen penetrating the stone planet, which I think that's the asteroid? I don't know. Oh yeah. Which was shown earlier. This stone planet, I believe, is his brain slash mind. <laughs> And he frequently hears the sound of train of rails, which seem to miss him or decides to miss it. I, what? I don't know what that means. But, but after he gets rid of the baby and his guilt, decides to end his life by facing this train head on, which is being interpreted by him as a blinding light approaching him. <laughs> okay. So then, not an undercover cop responds. Okay. This is as good of a theory as anything else I've ever read about this film. <laughs> I like this explanation, and I think you're onto something here. <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> why internets? Why? Oh, and then finally, this is uh, um, a little while later. Uh, Ridge-M-1 writes, this viewer sees no reference to drugs, taking drugs, an actual drug, su drug substance, or drug addiction. How did the original poster come up with this cracked brain interpretation? <laughs> like this viewer <laughs> yeah it's very it's very formal end of discussion then over on reddit uh, the original poster says uh this is jared t braun i've been getting more into lynch lately and finally watched a razor head of course when i finished that was very much wtf <laughs> <laughs> when i looked it up i found an interview where lynch states that any and every theory he has heard has been wrong so what are some of yours fellow movie lovers <laughs> this gets heated very quickly i should say um, until I see dubs too, my favorite, very diplomatically <laughs> says, maybe he says that so he can generate discussion about it. Oh, C-dubs. Yeah, he's quickly ignored and we never hear from C-dubs <laughs> again. But C-dubs, you're on the right track. Um, then, uh... I'm on team C-dubs. I know, C-dubs too, if you're out there, please get in touch with us. Yeah. You can be this on was, our podcast. This was many years ago, this was written, but who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um, then, um, <laughs> uh, writer Milnetig says, I was 16 when Eraserhead came out. I just remember the weird, the weird quail moving their legs after being cooked. Did they still have their heads attached? <laughs> oh my God, I'm creeped out. <laughs> <laughs> that's where you thought it was a quail from this. That's, um, I think that's why. Yeah, yeah. It, well, I mean, it's definitely not chicken. I, I have to like put the blame on Bill for that one. And then we'll just um, quickly look at an exchange between beef pie soup and user confused puppy face. Beef pie soup. And user confused. Or they're both users, but. Oh, oh. So I'll do. And um, confused beef. puppy face. Yeah, so. Beef. I want to be beef, beef pie okay, face. Okay, you be beef, 
Beef by soup. Oh, beef by soup. I'm so confused. All right, okay. see you. You know, if you've made a film and hundreds of different people have shared their interpretation of it and they're all, quote, wrong, that doesn't make you clever or a genius or something. It means you're a shit filmmaker. You've clearly failed to get any sort of message across. A filmmaker's goal is to communicate something through the medium of film. And this is confused puppy face. <laughs> Responding to yeah. beef pie soup. This is the worst comment I've ever read. <laughs> you haven't been on the internet very long. Yeah. Everything you've said, except, quote, a filmmaker's goal is to communicate something through the medium of film, quote, end quote, fails to communicate effectively anything but a misunderstanding of cinema. <laughs> and it comes off as stupid. Because Lynch communicates fuckloads of information through his films. <laughs> Lynch is communicative as fuck. Just because you're too dense to think for yourself doesn't mean that's not what is being done. And he signs off, good for you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> oh, snap. Okay, so Beef, pe beef Pie Soup. God, what is his name? Says, <laughs> in response... No, I'd be understanding if it were just me who didn't get it. But the direct quote here from Lynch was that everybody was wrong about it. Ergo, he obviously failed to make himself understood. And scene. Oh. And finally, Ugh. we're going to turn to uh, thecityofabsurdity.com. <laughs> papers, oh papers and Essays by Ray Wolf. And Who's yes, this Ray es Wolf? Essays is misspelled. Oh, no. So this is Ray Wolf's online guide to Eraserhead. <laughs> I'm not going to go into all of it. We're just going to um, look at uh, his glossary for how to understand everything as a symbol. And then um, a, a quick um, discussion of the hidden meaning in chapter one, which is sort of these arbitrary um, chunks of the film. Uh, this is a very Jonathan Edwards fire and brimstone sort of <laughs> <laughs> interpretation. Henry represents Henry. Nothing confusing here. <laughs> The work. Oh, I've yeah, seen. Yeah, go for it. Okay, the workman represents God, or more specifically, a god. Which is not more specific. <laughs> no, it's not. Similar to Greek mythology. The quote rock symbolizes the dwelling place of God. This could mean heaven, but most likely it represents a church. The worms, which are different from the baby, are symbolic of sin or an evil deed. The baby, not the worms, is in reality not necessarily an actual thing. It represents the outcome or consequence of a sin or evil deed. <laughs> it could be an actual baby, which is the outcome of sex, which is suggesting that's... But he just said it's or, not a thing. I don't know. Or a condition such as a disease. So I love <laughs> the outcomes what? of evil and sin are babies and diseases. I mean, I I think we know it's on Ray Wolf's that. mind. Um, <laughs> the radiator represents suicide. Not death, mind you, but... The actual sin of suicide. But the chipmunk girl, she is dead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think the chipmunk girl is the lady on the radio, yeah, right? Yeah, she okay. is. Oh, that's mean to call her chipmunk girl. Oh. Okay. I mean, we did call her tumorous, though, so chipmunk is probably more yeah, generous. Yeah, I mean, that's what it is. She, to is say... She, well, now maybe she is chipmunk-like. I don't... Yeah, I mean, she's so happy. She is very chipmunk-like. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, the dead tree in dirt, which is on the nightstand, is a religious symbol similar to a cross or a statue of a saint. I did not get that at all. I did not nope. see any um, sort of cross. Electric lights. <laughs> in all of David Lynch movies, this is a nice, just like, hard fact. In all David Lynch movies, electricity is good and darkness is evil. <laughs> what? And also, that's not true. Like, think about the flickering lights when they're, um... Doing the autopsy of Laura Palmer. Yeah. 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 That's not true. Guys, 
That's a plug for episode four or five. I don't know. Who's this dude? Ray. Ray Wolf. Ray Wolf. Get in touch with us. Yeah, good for you, bro. What did that guy, or <laughs> yeah, what, did, <laughs> what did confused puppy face say? <laughs> I already closed good out of it. Good on you, bro. <laughs> good on you. All right. So then just a quick a quick um, summary of, of Ray Wolf's summary of chapter one, Henry's confession. So the scene description, the film opens with Henry's head floating in space with the rock superimposed over his face. We explore the rock only to find the weird workman living inside. The workman is constantly looking out his window. Henry opens his mouth. A worm comes out. This makes the workman start up his machinery. The machinery takes the worm from Henry and casts it into a deep mud hole. So just take a second to take in the very specific nouns that, and images that were used. And then can you want to tackle the hidden meaning? The hidden meaning of this. This chapter begins with Henry thinking or focusing on church. Wait, it's not a question, but I just read it as a question because I was confused. Okay, so focusing on church, apparently. Church is where he knows God can be found. God is always watching his creations out of his window. That's in parentheses. Henry confesses his sin. The worm leaves his mouth. God puts forgiveness to work, and Henry's sin is cast away into the mud hole and forgotten. God also puts the consequence of Henry's sin into being, which we will discover in the next chapter. Which we'll leave to, to others to, to go read. If, if, <laughs> Parse that out. If you enjoyed this uh, brief preview, again, cityofabsurdity.com. <laughs> we'll put this on our show notes. <laughs> so, you know, in some, Eraserhead could be about many things. It could be I about parenting in general, about Jennifer Lynch's feet. It <laughs> could, could be... be a conversion narrative. I mean, uh, I will say to support Wolf here that Lynch has said that Eraserhead is his most spiritual film. And he found a quote in the Bible that got him start, sort of thinking about this. Did he say which quote? He refuses to say uh, which quote. So, I mean, it is it is spiritual, but I don't think the wolf is right about, like, the church or this is a cross. Yeah, I mean, we, I, I just think in good conscience, neither of us as literary critics could, could support um, such a heavily symbolic reading. Yeah, but no. I just... I mean, we appreciate everyone who is obsessed with these things, though. So exactly. We want to tell Ray Wolf to keep on keeping on. <laughs> yeah, that's true. In um, all sincerity, good on you, bro. <laughs> good on you, bro. That will be the tagline for, <laughs> yeah. for our podcast. Right. Well, is so, there anything else we should say about Eraserhead? I, I mean, there's so much more to say about... But it's it's all going to be this kind of confused process that we're working through. So maybe we just come back to them. Um, yeah, I mean, this might throughout. be the difference between you and me. But You're I'm like happy done. to move on. Okay. Ready to leave the early films behind. Ready to say goodbye to Eraserhead. I mean, I'm going to be ref- referencing bleh, referencing Eraserhead all season. I'm going to be referencing Ray Wolf all season. Okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Um, so next week, though, we're going to now look at David Lynch in Hollywood. Yes, um, the big Razorhead times. comes out. This opens a bunch of doors for him, and he starts getting some Hollywood films. Yes, with some famous actors. So we've got Anthony Hopkins coming up and John Hurt in and, The Elephant Man. And, yeah. Oh, oh, just speaking of the Hollywood period, largely the big K. The big K? The first uh, partnership with Kyle MacLachlan. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. My... My lover, yeah. <laughs> Not really. Um, All right, so we should, let's close up. Before we end, um, let's just say what's obsessing us this week outside yeah. of lunch. Yeah, I think, why don't you start, Sam? Why All don't right. you tell us what I'm gonna you're obsessed plug, with? I'm going to plug this new podcast that just came out called Missing Richard Simmons. <laughs> oh, 
Yes. What? Only one episode has been released, and it's amazing. I okay. cannot wait for the rest of the season. So apparently, um, I knew nothing about Richard Simmons, as it turned out. Except I have one story that some happened to someone I knew that I usually tell oh, as no. though it's my own story because it's really funny, <laughs> which I'll talk about another time. But um, he's been teaching the same workout class for 40 years, the same place. Yeah. And in 2014, he didn't show up to teach, and he's never been back. And he's <gasps> cut off all contact with the public. And so what? this one guy is investigating. There's one guy who wanted to do a documentary about him who had been attending his class for like a year or so and gotten to know him a little bit, is now on the hunt to find out how Richard Simmons is doing. And so yeah. this first episode, I should have known in hindsight that Richard Simmons would have been like a really fascinating dynamic figure. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. They've talked about just like some of his background, his sort of ascent into stardom, and he's so interesting and so complicated, and oh, I can't man. wait to hear more. Maybe so we is, should do a series. <laughs> we is, should pop <laughs> this podcast. Yeah, this is Missing Richard Simmons. Check it out. Oh, that's beautiful. Okay, so mine is so, so less interesting. I'm obsessed with, <laughs> right now, female monarchs. Um, so I, our listeners should know, they will know very quickly that um, even though I'm a 29-year-old woman, I am actually a 55-year-old man. Um, because, like, all I want to do is listen to really old biographies and watch, like, the PBS, you know, series. Mm-hmm. So right now I'm really into Victoria. Um, Queen Victoria? Yeah, well, the show on PBS, oh, Victoria. Right. Um, it's, go- like, it's beautiful. It's, the, it's an incredibly well-done production. But I also... This past week, read a biography of Catherine the Great, and I'm obsessed with Queen Elizabeth, and just, like, those badass women in history who, I don't know, like, are so boring to other people, <laughs> but there, I love it. There's a really famous Catherine the Great movie, right? Is it, like, Marlena Dietrich's in it? Yeah, something I like that. I haven't seen it. I should watch it now that I just finished yeah. the bio. Catherine the Great had... Hello, a lot of lover, lovers, so she's... Like upwards of... Like 12. Oh. Yeah, like she would find a new guardsman and just be like, yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we should end on that note, Yeah. Right? We oh, wait, next week. We're thinking about a sign-off tag. Oh, we talked about next week. Oh, we did. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. So next week is the big Hollywood day. Yeah. And we'll start spitballing some sign-offs for next week, but we don't have anything, so um, stay, keep on... Stay obsessed and... Digressed. Stay digressed. Stay digressed. All right.